Well, welcome to Grace. I'm so glad you could join us uh, today. It's kind of weird. It's very weird because you can see me, but I can't see you. And there's just a handful of you here today. Thank you for coming. But it looks like this is going to be the new normal for the foreseeable future, so we're going to make the best of it. What I want to do first is thank our tech team for working so hard this week. Uh, They have labored even up to the very last second, uh, dealing with issues and technical difficulties. And so thank you guys for all that you've done for us. If anything happens and there's a hiccup or something in the uh, online streaming, like our TVs used to say in the old days, please stand by or just hit refresh. But even though this is a little weird at least more so for me, we're going to do what we normally do on Sunday morning. So open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to Psalm 123. We're taking a one-week break today from 1 Kings, and Lord willing, we'll finish that book up next week. And then I'm not sure if we're going to start 2 Corinthians the week after that or not. Uh, We have Easter coming up, so we may wait until after Easter to start 2 Corinthians. Um, This coronavirus has thrown a kink into everyone's plans, so we're just going to kind of roll with it here. Today, it is Psalm 123. Psalm 123 has been resonating in my heart over the past week as things began unfolding, and so I just kept coming back to this psalm. I found myself coming back and reading these words time and time again, and so I felt that we should turn to Psalm 123 today to help us deal with everything that's going on in our world. And our big idea today is this heart-thrilling good news. Jesus loves desperate people. He really does. He, He loves people who are freaking out. He loves people who are pulling their hair out and feel like they're lost and they have nowhere to go. Those are Jesus' favorite kind of people. He loves desperate people. Isn't that great news? Are you desperate today? Listen, I've got some good news for you. Jesus loves when desperate people approach him and ask for help. And so this psalm, Psalm 123, is in the Bible so that you would know this about Jesus when you go through a pandemic, that Jesus welcomes desperate people. This psalm was written for people who have to deal with the coronavirus so that they would remember that Jesus loves to listen to desperate people. Jesus loves helping desperate people. So it's not a burden to interrupt him and cry for help. And that's exactly what the people in this psalm do. They cry out to Jesus to help them. So Psalm 123, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. We don't know who wrote this psalm, but Psalm 123 is one of the songs that the ancient Israelites would sing as they made their journey to Jerusalem to worship the Lord during several of their yearly festivals. And the psalmist tells us right off the bat that his eyes are on Yahweh. They are on the Lord. And the first thing that we learn about the psalmist is this. 
he is helpless. He looks to God because he knows that he is powerless. He lifts his eyes up to the Lord, which is the appropriate response for any disciple, any day of their life, whether there's a coronavirus going around or not. To look to God and to lift your eyes up to Him is an act of humility. To look to God is to grab your pride by the collar and drag it to your front door and then throw it out on the street. To look to God is opening yourself up to the Holy Spirit and saying, please, knock the swagger out of me. To look to God like the psalmist does here is to admit that you are not in control and that you are powerless and helpless without Him. And that's prayer at its essence, isn't it? Prayer is just acknowledging our helplessness. That's all that prayer is. Prayer is simply saying to Jesus, Look, Jesus, you and I both know that I like to mosey around under the false pretense that I'm the one in charge. But I'm here to tell you that I'm ready to quit acting like a fool. I'm ready to admit that I am helpless. P.S. Will you please help me? Because I'm really desperate. That's all that prayer is. It's embracing your helplessness and turning your eyes to Jesus, the only one who can really help you. Prayer is how we slog our way through all of our troubles in life. We go to God. And we lift our eyes up to him. And we tell him what's happening in our lives, everything that's going on. And we tell him about everything that's going on in this little heart of ours. And we do this knowing that Jesus is not opposed to helping us. It's not an inconvenience to him. Jesus is not like a parent on their iPhone who gets interrupted by their kids as they're scrolling through Instagram. And they're like, just leave me alone. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't yell at us. Jesus loves to be interrupted by and then to intervene to save his people. Jesus has invited us just to barge into his presence and cry for help. And the psalmist here in Psalm 123 has taken Yahweh, the Lord, up on this invitation. In fact, the first words of this psalm are, to you, which is emphatic in the original Hebrew language. The emphasis is on the Lord. To you. Those two words remind us that it matters where you look. It matters where and who you hope in. It matters who you turn to in times of crisis. To you. What sweet Words. In Hebrew, it's just one word, but it takes us two to say it in English. But notice that there's movement with those two words. I am turning to you. I am going to you. I am not trusting in my own wisdom, Jesus. I'm not trusting in my own thoughts, my own speculations, my own government. I am going to you, Jesus. These two words are an invitation to us. They tell us that the door to God's office is always open. 
They tell us that we have a standing appointment with Jesus anytime and anywhere to you. There's no social distancing with Jesus. To you. Jesus doesn't do social distancing. To you, I will barge in with the coronavirus-like symptoms of my sin. To you, I will run to with all of my fears and all of my doubts and all of my worries. To you. Understand this, Grace. Jesus doesn't turn us away like that bartender at the Moss Eisley Cantina in Star Wars. Do you know that scene? Listen, you have to know that scene or we can't be friends. I'm sorry. Do you know that scene? I'm going to assume that you do, okay? Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker, along with the two droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, enter into a cantina a bar in the spaceport city of Moss Eisley. And when the bartender, a man named Wu Her, sees the two droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, he says this, Hey, we don't serve their kind here. Your droids, they'll have to wait outside. We don't want them here. Some people think Jesus is like that. Some preachers you listen to, that's the picture that they paint of Jesus. Like you show up and Jesus says, I don't want your kind here. But that's not Jesus at all. He's not like that at all. Jesus says, we serve your kind here. We serve all kinds of needy sinners. We serve the doubters, the fearful, the worried, the sick, the worried sick. We take everyone here. No shirt, no shoes, no problem. Come on in and bring all your baggage. We love people who have a lot of baggage. That's what those words to you are telling us today. In other words, welcome. They're the Old Testament version of Matthew 11, which was our call to worship today, where Jesus said, come to me. Notice that. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, Jesus says, and here the psalmist says, to you I will go, to you I will lift up my eyes. There's an invitation right there. Jesus invites the weak, the weary, the downtrodden, the tired, the exhausted, the heavy laden, to come to him and find rest. But you have to come empty-handed, which means that you have to admit that you don't have it all together. You have to admit that you need help. You have to admit that you are helpless, that you are indeed a sinner. Not very popular to preach these days to call people sinners, but that's what we are. Even for those of us who are in Christ, we're still sinners and we need a Savior. But notice too that the psalmist here focuses on who God is in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Before he ever brings up what is happening in his life, the psalmist talks about who God is. Before he ever brings up anything that's happening in his life, what does the psalmist do? He brings up who 
God is. Before he ever starts spilling the beans on what his troubles are, he recalibrates his heart by reminding himself that God rules over everything, that Jesus sits enthroned in heaven above. I'm sure we don't do that as often as we like, do we? But what a difference it makes. To begin your prayers by reminding your soul that Jesus is not just enthroned, but that he is enthroned in the heavens, that will give you the perspective that you need as you deal with the coronavirus and how it is upending all that we know in our world today. You see, biblical prayers that you find in the Bible... They seem to meditate on and mull over who God is more often than our prayers, I think. Biblical prayers tend to spill more ink on God and who He is and what He is like and what He has done than our prayers do. It's like they know something that we don't in the Bible. They seem to know that when you begin your prayers by focusing on Jesus and who he is and what he has done for sinners like us, it has a way of changing everything. It has a way of actually calming your heart. But notice too what God is doing here. God is sitting down. Did you catch that? He's not pacing the floor. He's not biting his nails. He's not tossing and turning in bed. He's not calling the press to show up at the Rose Garden at 3 p.m. Eastern time so he can speak to the country. He's sitting down in control. No panic, no nail biting. That's your God, Christian. This is who you pray to. You serve a God who is in total control of everything, even your last breath. Think about that. He controls even your last breath. Not some virus. Who kept your lungs working last night as you slept? Jesus did. And so right off the bat, Psalm 123 is letting God's character infect everything. It's like the psalmist wants this prayer to break out in heavenly hives. He wants the God who is enthroned in the heavens to affect and permeate this entire prayer right from the get-go. And isn't this exactly what you and I need more than anything as we suffer and endure life in a sin-filled world? Don't we need our lives to break out in heavenly hives? Don't we need God to infect and permeate everything that we are going through? We need the character of God, who he is, to infect our lives and to spread everywhere more than we need the coronavirus to stop spreading. Let me say that again. We need the character of God, who he is, to infect our lives and to spread everywhere in our lives more than we need the coronavirus to stop spreading. Now, of course, we want this virus to stop spreading, so pray for that. But what we need more than that is God. What you and I need when we suffer is this. We need God rubbed into our pain. God rubbed into our troubles. God rubbed into our fears. We need who Jesus is and what he has done rubbed deep down 
into our pores. What we need is a vision of the triune God enthroned up above the heavens, rubbed deep down into our pain and our troubles and our fear. We need the Holy Spirit to infect every area of our hearts. And that's what the psalmist does right out of the gate with his prayer. And what happens when God begins infecting your life? What happens when you get a glimpse of the triune God enthroned above the heavens? What happens when you get a reminder that Jesus is all-powerful and in control of everything? It kind of has a way of humbling you, doesn't it? It kind of has a way of making your knees bend. Look at verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. You see, there's something, there's just something about seeing Jesus high and lifted up that takes your breath away. There's just something about seeing God sitting on his throne that knocks you down a size or two. There's just something about seeing Jesus that will knock your socks off and that will knock the swagger out of your step. Catching a glimpse of the enthroned God kind of has a way of making your knees bend. That is, if you're willing to be humbled. That is, if you're willing to admit your weakness. But I suspect that you are like me, and at times you are allergic to weakness. Why are we this way? Because we don't like to admit that we need help. The old Adam dies a long, slow, painful death in our hearts, doesn't he? We forget that helplessness is how prayer works. We forget that helplessness is how the Christian life works. We forget that to be a Christian, you have to be able to bend your knees. And that's what we see in verse 2. Servants humble themselves. Maidservants bend at the knee. Servants and maidservants look to their masters for everything because they are dependent the eye that looks to the master acknowledges weakness and acknowledges need. And so a lifted eye implies a bent knee. And the hand that acknowledges the lifted eye is none other than the master who is enthroned above, who is willing to meet that need. And that's prayer. We look to God, we lift our eyes up to him, we acknowledge our need, we admit our helplessness, and Jesus extends his hand and meets our need. That's prayer, and that's faith. That's what coming to Jesus is all about. That's accepting his Matthew 11 invitation when he says, come to me. We look to him because we know that Jesus loves desperate people. He really does. And we know the people in Psalm 123 are desperate because they tell us what they're doing in verse 2. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. These guys are not going to stop seeking God until he has mercy. That's what desperate people do. Desperate people don't quit seeking help, do they? Desperate people are desperate and therefore they have no quit in them. Desperate people keep seeking help. And when they do, it's proof of their faith. 
Desperation doesn't mean that you don't have faith. Don't get that wrong. Desperation does not mean that you don't have faith. Desperation is proof that you do have faith because you hightail it to Jesus. And so this phrase here in verse 2, till he has mercy upon us, that's faith. Verse 2 is stuffed with faith. We are going to keep looking to you, Jesus, until you have mercy upon us. That's faith. We will not stop until you have mercy on us. And that's exactly what they pray for next, mercy. Look at verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, O Yahweh. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. They're praying for mercy or grace here. The idea with the Hebrew word that's used here, and it usually gets translated as either mercy or grace in English translations. The idea with this word is favor. It's the Hebrew word for grace, God's unmerited favor, that he just gives it to sinners. We can't do anything to earn it. We can't be good enough. God just says, I will forgive you. I will love you. I will accept you because of my son Jesus. That's grace. You can't do anything to earn God's love, to earn his favor. And that's the word here, favor. It's the gospel, really. These people are asking for a heartfelt response from the Lord to be gracious to them, to be merciful to them, to have compassion on them, and to give them what they need, namely relief from those who are scorning them. And so what the psalmist is really doing here is this. He's telling us what Jesus is like. He's telling us that Jesus is merciful, that Jesus is gracious. Notice that three times he uses this Hebrew word here, hanan, for favor or grace. This word, hanan, depicts a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to someone in need. It's this heartfelt response by someone who says, I have something to give you because you need it. It's the heart of God moving out to desperate sinners in order to meet their needs. And so the psalmist piles these words up here. Three times he piles these words up. It's kind of like a car, a car wreck, you know, on, on the freeway or on the highway. He wants you to slow down and rubberneck and check out his use of this one word three times. He's piled them up like a car wreck because he really believes that this is who Jesus is. It's all that God is for sinners like us. It's his mercy, his grace, his favor, his compassion. It's Jesus, really. And so we look to Jesus knowing that this is what he is like at his core. This is who Jesus is in his essence. He really is kind. I don't know what kind of picture you have of Jesus, what you've heard preachers talk about, but at his essence, at his core, he is kind. And he is merciful to people like us who don't deserve it. He is really good. And we look to him, and really, is there any other option? We look to the God who sits enthroned in the heavens 
and who just so happens to be the most kind, most merciful person that exists. That's what our hearts need to hear this morning. The most powerful person in the universe who is in control of everything, everything that's happening in our world today, who's in control of our every breath, even our last breath, that God is full of love and compassion for people like us. It's amazing. Jesus really isn't like that bartender in Star Wars. But notice too, there's a time element here. They look to the Lord, they wait on him until he has mercy on them. This is another gentle reminder from the Holy Spirit that discipleship following Jesus is learning over and over and over again that your life is one big experience of to you I lift up my eyes. That's discipleship. Discipleship is one lifelong journey of repeating these words to Jesus. To you, I lift up my eyes. It's praying often as they do here. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Discipleship is just like uh, being Jan Brady on the Brady Bunch. So in this kind of quarantine lockdown, we've been watching a lot of Brady Bunch. Um, in fact, we were watching yesterday, and Birdie, our youngest, she's five years old. We have six kids, three boys, three girls. We were watching the show, and Birdie looks at me, and she goes, they copied us. Three boys, three girls. They copied us. Okay, they did. But do you remember that episode of the Brady Bunch where Jan is jealous of her sister, and all she says is, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That's a picture of discipleship. We just say, mercy, mercy, mercy. We just say, mercy, 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 over and over again until Jesus intervenes. And that means that we will have to, one, learn to wait, and two, be comfortable with the unknown. If we're going to follow Jesus as disciples, we're going to have to learn what it means to wait. And we're going to have to be comfortable with the, uh, the unknown. Till he has mercy upon us implies what? Till he has mercy upon us implies waiting and waiting and waiting. And we don't like waiting, do we? We hate delays, right? Coronavirus Costco lines? Ain't nobody got time for that. We hate waiting, don't we? We want Jesus to answer our prayers yesterday. We hate ambiguity, don't we? We want to be able to discern and to know what God is up to. We hate waiting, having to wait on God. And we hate silence when it seems like God is quiet and he's not answering our prayers. But you know what? This is where we get to know Jesus more. In those moments when it seems like God is not listening, when it seems like he's not working even though he is, in those moments when we just wait and we wait and we wait, that's where we really get to know Jesus. In those times when it seems like God is not listening, 
and not answering and not doing anything on our behalf, that's when we can grow in our relationship with Jesus. This is where, this is the context where we really get to know Jesus. And so use this time of quarantine and lockdown, etc. Use this time to know Jesus more and to love him more and to enjoy him more. Maybe you can just pick one of the gospels to read over the next several weeks and just observe Jesus. Observe how he treats people. Observe the compassion that flows from him. I just read it last night. It just said the crowds were gathered and Jesus had compassion on them. Use this time to get to know the compassionate Savior. Listen, Grace, there's no way to change this reality. While we seek to follow God faithfully in this world, many times we find ourselves in desperate situations and unpredictable moments that we would not choose. Frankly, we wouldn't choose what's happening. Many times we would not choose what God is allowing and orchestrating in our lives. We wouldn't even go there. And so God often leads us along these paths that we wouldn't choose. And he leads us to these places because he has purposes there that are far beyond us. Let me say that again. He has purposes for us with whatever is happening in our life that go far beyond what we could see. He's going to use everything happening in our world today to further his kingdom and to bring good into our lives. I mean, you can count on that. You can trust the God who sits enthroned in the heavens. And so what many times appear as misfortunes in our lives actually later end up being God's mercies to us. On the surface, it seems like this is just a big misfortune. And in time, we realize that was just God's mercies to us. It's just hard to see in the moment because trusting Jesus is hard, right? God is good at turning misfortunes into mercies. We just have to wait. And while we wait, what are we called to do? To trust, and to rest, and to believe and to take Jesus up on his invitation from Matthew 11 where he said, come to me and I will give you rest. Listen, Jesus knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for you. You don't. You think you know what's best for you. I think I know what's best for me. I find myself praying, God, if you would just do this, 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 and this, it's the best thing for me and it would make me really happy. I've learned through the years that God just doesn't do everything I ask him. And in time, I look back and I say, I'm so glad God didn't give me everything that I asked him. He knows what is best for us. And you can trust him now, no matter what you're going through. So we have to learn to wait with expectation. And listen, we should wait with expectation because Jesus is with us. Who do we believe in? Who do we trust? Whatever's happening in our life, we can come with expectancy that, hey, good things are going to come out of this situation because Jesus is here. Anytime Jesus is here, things are going to turn out well. 
They're going to turn out right according to his wisdom. So we can expect good things from him because he is good and he does good. So it takes a, a shift of our thinking. We have to recalibrate ourselves, whatever's happening, and say, I'm expecting good things to happen because Jesus is here. And when Jesus is here and when Jesus shows up, good things happen. We don't have to wait, biting our nails, hoping he comes through for us. We don't have to pace the floor. We wait in faith because we know what kind of God he is. He sits enthroned in the heavens. We know that about him. He's faithful. Listen, God is not toying with us right now. He's not sitting back playing games. He's not getting some kind of weird kick, watching all of us squirm as we wait to see how all this shakes out. That's not who he is. Waiting until he has mercy upon us is faith doing what faith does, which is waiting. Faith waits until the promise is fulfilled. And faith is not phased. Not because our faith is so special, because it's not. Faith is not phased because faith knows who God is. Faith knows that God sits enthroned in the heavens. And knowing who God is enables faith to be patient as it waits. But the words in verse 2 till he has mercy upon us, those words also imply that we're going to have to get used to the unknown while we wait. Listen, if the unknown bothers you, you'll be a frustrated Christian. If the unknown bothers you, you're going to be a frustrated disciple. You have to deal with a lot of the unknown when you become a Christian. I'm sorry, no one told you that. They should have. But it's what you do know that gets you through the unknown. It's what you do know about Jesus that gets you through all of the unknown that you have to go through in this life. And part of what the people here in Psalm 123 are going through is dealing with unbelievers who are ridiculing them. They're weary of being ridiculed and laughed at because of their faith in the Lord. And so they speak in verses 3 and 4 of being full or having more than enough of all of this ridicule and scorn. Their souls are stuffed with this ridicule. The Hebrew word there has the idea of filling something to the brim or just stuffing yourselves, gorging on food and being miserably stuffed. They're stuffed on all this scorn and contempt, and they can't take it anymore, so they're asking Yahweh to stoop down and to be gracious to them, to stop the scorn and the contempt that they've had enough of. They want the Lord to extend them grace. They want and they need grace. And what we actually see here is that Psalm 123 is a gift of God's grace to us. Psalm 123 is God extending his grace to us because what Psalm 123 reminds us of is that life is not easy. Psalm 123 reminds us that we will suffer and we will have to endure hostility. And so God, in his grace, shows us the reality of serving him in this world. He tells us right here in this psalm 
that life is hard. Why? Why do we have psalms like Psalm 123 that remind us that life is hard? Derek Kidner says, It is a function of the psalms to touch the nerve of this problem and keep its pain alive against the comfort of our familiarity with a corrupt world. God gives us psalms like Psalm 123 to touch the nerve of this problem so that we won't get comfortable in this world. And so there's a lot of ink spilled in the Psalms about our enemies and about all of our troubles precisely to touch the nerve so that we will be reminded that life is hard and we are dependent on God. When the nerves of our souls get touched by all of our problems, we can't get comfortable with this world, can we? This Psalm leaves you feeling uncomfortable Because guess what? There's no resolution after verse 4. There's no no verse 5. You want a verse 5. You want it to end and read that their prayers were answered. You want verse 5, but we don't get that. Why? Because this is where life takes us sometimes. We pray and we pray and we pray, and sometimes we don't see the answer, at least not the way that we want it. Now, of course, God always hears and answers our prayers. He doesn't always answer them in the way that we want, but He always answers our prayers. Sometimes we don't see Him answer it, but He does in His time and in His ways. And that's an uncomfortable place to be, huh? Sometimes we're left hanging, just like at the end of Psalm 123. Sometimes you pray and pray and pray, and you pour your heart out over and over and over again to God. And then you have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And that's the point that this psalm is trying to make. Sure, we'd love to have resolution to this psalm. We'd love to see it end with something like this. Yahweh answered our prayers. Yahweh heard our cries and saved us from our scoffers. Let Israel worship the name of the Lord. But it doesn't end that way, does it? There's no resolution. But it really doesn't matter if there's no resolution or not. Because those things are not what's most important. The psalmist has intentionally left it out. But he, what he has included is what is most important. And what is most important is what he told you back in verse 1. Look there again. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. What the psalmist wants you to walk away with is not having your curiosity satisfied. He wants you to walk away from Psalm 123 remembering that Yahweh sits enthroned above the heavens and that he's in control of everything. And you can call on him just like these people did in Psalm 123. You pray to the same God, Christian, the same God who hears your cries for mercy, the one who just so happens to be enthroned in the heavens. And that ought to be just enough truth to get you through whatever it is that you're going through right now. What you need right now as you go through whatever trial Jesus has you going through right now, is this, information about God. That's what you need most in your life. 
as you go through what we're dealing with with the coronavirus and schools being delayed and parents getting packets and packets of school and now they're having to homeschool and everything's just out of whack. What do you need most? Information about God. That's what you need. More info about Jesus, more gospel, more good news, more reminders about Jesus. You don't need answers. Oh, you'd like answers, so would I. But you don't need answers. What you need is God. Answers won't necessarily bring you the peace that you so desperately want. But Jesus will. As David Pallison says, your relationship with God is what brings peace, not having every question answered. It's your relationship with Jesus that ushers peace into your life, not having every one of your questions answered. It's Jesus who is offering you rest and peace. And so the God who lives in verse 1 is the one who brings you peace. The God who dispenses mercy and grace to struggling sinners, He's the one who brings you peace. And acknowledging your helplessness is what opens the door to that peace. Admitting that you can do nothing and that you know nothing will bring you the peace that you crave. Admitting that you are a complete idiot will bring you the peace that you so desperately want. And so our weakness then is a channel that allows us access to God's grace and peace. The gospel uses your weakness as the door to God's grace. That's Psalm 123. That's how grace works. Bending your knees makes grace flow downhill. Helplessness is the door to God's grace, not your comfort. We think comfort and security brings God's grace and peace. No, helplessness does. Weakness does. Weakness and helplessness and being desperate, that's what ushers in grace into your life, not being comfortable not having a comfortable life. And that means then that comfortable people have no need of Jesus. But desperate people do. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves desperate people. People who pull out their hair, people who are panicking, people who are afraid right now. He welcomes people like that and he gives them peace and rest. Jesus loves desperate people. And the proof of that is that Jesus died for us when we were sinners. He died for desperate people who could never be good enough to earn God's love, never be good enough to earn God's favor. And that's why God had to come down because we could never earn our way. So Jesus comes and offers unmerited favor, grace, Jesus comes and empties out the heart of God for people like us, for people who hoard groceries when other people just want a can of beans. He offers grace to people who hoard groceries. He offers grace for people who blame others for everything. He offers grace for people who have yelled at their kids because they have been cooped up with them all week. Know anyone like that? Jesus comes to people like that and he pours out God's love and grace. And so there's never been a better time
to be a sinner. There's never been a better time to be a self-centered, desperate sinner. Why? Because of the cross. Because the cross is where we see the favor of God. We see the Hanan of God. At the cross, we see the heartfelt response of God giving to desperate sinners who have needs. The cross is the heart of God moving out to desperate sinners in order to meet their needs. Octavius Winslow said this. He lived in the 1800s. He said, the cross of Jesus displays the most awful exhibition of God's hatred of sin and at the same time, the most august manifestation of his readiness to pardon it. Pardon, full and free, is written out in every drop of blood that is seen, is proclaimed in every groan that is heard, and shines in the very prodigy of mercy that closes the solemn scene upon the cross. O blessed door of return, open and never shut to the wanderer from God. How glorious, how free, how accessible. Here the sinful, the vile, the guilty, the unworthy, the poor, the penniless may come. Here too, The weary spirit may bring its burden. The broken spirit, its sorrow. The guilty spirit, its sin. The backsliding spirit, its wandering. All are welcome here. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love a poor, guilty sinner. The door to the heart of God is open to you today. And you access it by going through the cross by admitting your sin and turning away from you and living for you, and then by faith, with the empty hands of faith, taking Jesus up on his offer. It's glorious, and it's free. That's the good news. It's free. So come. What are you waiting for? What in the world are you waiting for? He welcomes you today. So come on home to Jesus. And unload your burden and bring your sorrow and bring your broken heart and come reeking of your sin. Bring all your sin, all your shame. Just bring it all because all are welcome here. Come to me, Jesus says. And the psalmist says, to you, I lift up my eyes. Anyone can come. Really, pastor, anyone can come? Yeah. Anyone can come. Why? Because Jesus is not like that rude bartender in Star Wars. Hey, we don't serve their kind here. Your droids, they'll have to wait outside. We don't want them here. Some people think Jesus is like that. He's not. Some people think you show up and Jesus says, I don't want your kind here. That's not Jesus at all. He's not like that. Jesus says, We serve your kind here. All are welcome. Come unto me. God loves desperate sinners. 
His heart has opened up and emptied itself out. There's infinite mercy gushing out for you today. There's pardon and forgiveness full and free. Receive it. Have you been wandering from God, running away from Him? The door is open and never shut. Just come on home. What in the world are you waiting for? Just come on home. All are welcome here. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that the door stands open. Such amazing truth that you welcome sinners, people who rebel against you, people who hoard groceries, people who yell at their kids, people who are rotten to the core. You welcome us and you give us peace and you give us rest and you give us your righteousness and there's pardon full and free and we thank you for that today. We want to worship you and give you glory for your life, death, and resurrection. May we come with the empty hands of faith and say, I'll just receive it, Jesus. I'll just believe you. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen.